field crest towards Quentin. Um, turn around, I was driving down Quentin, I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. This is at Glover, subject 1074, electronic ID aware. NCJA 1014. Headquarters to 11105. NCJA 1014. Welcome to the North Carolina Justice Academy 1014 podcast. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. Today we're going to discuss encountering opioids in the field, proper handling, protective equipment, and much more. First, I'd like to introduce our guest, Kelly Page with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. Special Agent Page recently served as Assistant Special Agent in charge of the Clandestine Laboratory Response Unit and worked in that unit for almost 14 years. She has been active in the North Carolina Narcotics Enforcement Officers Association and is currently the Assistant Director of the Professional Standards Division of the SBI. We also have with us Jessica Cadwallader. Special Agent Cadwallader is currently the Assistant Special Agent in charge of the Clandestine Laboratory Response Unit and has been working with the SBI for 20 years. Her past duty assignments include site safety agent with the Clandestine Laboratory Response Unit and as field agent assigned to the Southeastern District of the SBI. Ladies, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Good morning. One of the things that we want to talk about specifically for field officers is proper handling of some of the drugs that they may encounter out in the field. And it seems more and more that we're hearing the term fentanyl. And everything that I've heard about fentanyl just relates to it's not good. The, the bottom line is it's just bad stuff. So, Agent Page, could you kind of first of all talk a little bit about what fentanyl is and how it's being introduced and what cops on the street really need to be aware of? Yeah, so fentanyl is traditionally used as a um, uh, for pain relief by physicians. So someone that may have surgery may be prescribed may be prescribed fentanyl. Or doctors may be may use fentanyl on them. So it's all it's an anesthetic and it's also um, a, an analgesic, meaning for pain relief. Um, it is one of the most potent opioids that are available. Opioid infers that it or implies that it is a man-made substance. So fentanyl is actually made. It's not something that's grown outside that can then be produced into a drug. It actually has to be made in a pharmaceutical um, type setting. Mm -hmm. And that's traditionally what we see. It is very, very powerful, um, way more powerful than the other narcotics that we see prescribed by physicians like morphine, which is one of the, one of the most powerful pain relievers up until fentanyl mm -hmm. was introduced. And we see fentanyl in a variety of ways. In a hospital setting, we would see it introduced generally as a, as a liquid, like by IV fluid. Uh, but what we see, oh, oh and I'm sorry, our, also on the prescription side, we also see fentanyl in tablet form, and we also see it as a patch, as mm -hmm. a patch that you put on your skin. And then very, very small amounts of the fentanyl will be absorbed into the skin, into your bloodstream, and that's what helps you with the pain that you're feeling. What we see as um, law enforcement officers on the illicit side is totally different from what we see that, that's prescribed by physicians. So the illicit fentanyl often comes in many different forms. Um, it, it should be a white powder after it's produced, but at that point it can then be 
put into different types of tablets or pills that we call them clandestinely produced pills because they're not produced in a pharmaceutical company, but rather they may be produced in someone's kitchen or basement or a storage unit. And these pills, these tablets are made to look just like a, a tablet that you would get from a pharmacy, but we have no idea what is contained in the tablet without some sort of a laboratory analysis. Mm -hmm. So I'd say the powder form of the drug and the tablet form of the drug are the two most common ways that law enforcement is, is encountering it out in the field. All right. So, and I may be jumping ahead just a little bit in, in talking about the ingestion of fentanyl. Does someone on the street have any idea that they might be taking an opioid or some other type of drug that could be laced with fentanyl? Is, is there anything about it that really kind of stands out? Does it light up under black light or something strange like that? That's a really good question. Unfortunately, there is nothing about fentanyl that is obvious. And that is both concerning for the user, for a drug mm -hmm. user, and also for a law enforcement officer who may encounter it. Um, so because it may be a white powder form, there are many other drugs that we encounter as law enforcement officers that are powders, such as um, crushed up tablets, such as methamphetamine, such as cocaine. And so a drug user who may use one of these other drugs may in an unintentionally use fentanyl or they may intentionally try to purchase fentanyl. They just don't know. And then on the law enforcement side, um, that kind of takes us to why we're here today is to discuss as a law enforcement officer what some of the hazards are because we also may not know what we're handling when we're arresting someone or we are searching a residence and seizing these or a vehicle and seizing these narcotics. There is no obvious indicator of what you're dealing with. Right. Agent Cadwaller, I, we, we talked a little bit about the clandestine laboratory. Mm -hmm. And I think most officers, when they walk into a basement, hotel room, wherever this may be taking place, will probably not have any idea what they're looking at. Can you kind of give a, a description of how this manufacturing process takes place and what cops may see if, if they walk in? What are some of the things they might be looking for? I know that's a really broad question, <laughs> and I know you probably can't answer it in the 30 minutes that we have here, but maybe just um, kind of a first look. What are some of the things that they might be seeing? Well, I think the most common thing that officers are going to run into is a uh, repackaging situation rather than manufacturing fentanyl itself. The manufacturing of fentanyl um, is a very complicated and difficult process. So there would be like a chemistry setup. It would be pretty obvious that there was something going on. They may just not know what the drug is that's being produced. So um, most likely what someone's going to encounter when they go into a house is uh, repackaging where, you know, there's a unknown powders in potentially kilo form, mm -hmm. and then they're being broken down into, you know, smaller baggies. So that again would be obvious. It's just you're not sure as to what the drug may be. It could be cocaine. It could be methamphetamine. It could be anything. So um, just taking universal precautions when encountering that situation. If there's gross contamination where there's powder everywhere on every surface, um, that would be a situation where you would want to wear more protective equipment, probably call us and request assistance in that situation. But 
So um, we're beyond latex gloves at this point is what you're saying. Yes, yes, nitrile gloves, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> way beyond. Right. So how volatile is is a condition like this, a room like this? How how extremely dangerous is it? Well, it is extremely dangerous because you're you don't know what you're what you're facing. Um, as opposed to a meth lab where things are potentially explosive or can catch on fire, this is a situation where um, the inhalation risk is pretty great. So the slight disruption of um, anything in the room that can generate, uh, you know, a puff of air or a breeze or something that can make the the powder go airborne certainly puts everybody at risk right. if they're not wearing the proper PPE. So okay. that that would be a pretty significant danger. Right. And I'm I'm guessing that the folks who are in this business who are repackaging manufacturing probably don't take the necessary safety precautions that they probably should. Well, they may. They may understand what the drug is that they're mm-hmm. dealing with and so they may have a mask or um, you know, s- some kind of equipment to protect themselves because even they would be vulnerable, um, you know, to the dangers. But, um, you know, officers, when they're first going into a house and encountering something like that, they're certainly not expecting to, to be wearing the, that type of PPE. So, that, so they're actually at greater risk than the potential suspects inside. Okay. So let's get right down to it. Um, once that cop walks into that room, and they see these things that look clandestine and they feel like something illegal is really going on here, what's the best thing for them to do? What's, what's the first precaution, Kelly? Um, so if an officer is serving a search warrant or they enter a residence and they see these items, the best thing to do at that point is to secure the, the suspects and to evacuate the house. Um, or, or whatever structure they're in. And they would want to, at that point, contact um, the SBI. And we have a clandestine laboratory response unit that can then assist them if there is the gross contamination like Jessica was referring to, where there's powder all over the place. They would need some additional assistance there. If they go into a location and there's baggies of powder, so it's not necessarily loose, it's not necessarily airborne, it's just the, the narcotics that they encounter every day, then there are some things that they can do uh, that they are probably already have in their patrol cars mm-hmm. to keep themselves safe. Uh, one of those items that that's, seems um, pretty obvious but may not be is to put on gloves, to wear gloves, and we recommend nitrile gloves rather than latex gloves Mm -hmm. because nitrile protects you from the chemicals that you're dealing with from them absorbing through your skin. And a lot of times we recommend doubling up with your nitrile gloves so that way if you get something unknown, some unknown powder on their outer glove, you can still take those off and throw them away and your, your skin is still protected. So gloves seems obvious, but a lot of times as law enforcement officers, we're in a rush and we just need to get the job done and it is kind of a secondary thought. Um, if, if an officer does get um, some sort of powder on their skin, and it's an unknown powder. Because fentanyl is skin absorbent, is a skin absorber, then it's very important to not use hand sanitizer because it's alcohol-based. And so the 
uh, fentanyl can then be absorbed through the skin. So again, it's very, that's counterintuitive for law enforcement because we grab the hand sanitizer very quickly after we encounter a suspect or a subject out in the field, but really it would be better to have something like a non-alcohol based wipe or soap and water is actually the best thing and it'll come right off your skin. Um, there are some other things that officers can do to protect themselves, such as um, where a lot of police officers have gas masks that they're issued by their agencies. It never hurts when you're searching a location to put that gas mask on, and if the filters are appropriate, which ma majority of them are going to be, then they will filter out a lot of the fentanyl particles that might be in the air or that they might encounter. Um, also. If they don't have a, a respirator issued by their department, a simple N95 dust mask mm -hmm. or mask that you, like you can get at a hardware right. store would protect the airway. And that's really what we're worried about is protecting what, what officers are breathing in. Um, and then lastly, a lot of agencies now are carrying naloxone, mm -hmm. which is the um, basically the drug that can reverse an overdose symptoms, whether it's for the user or for an officer that has potentially been exposed. So we would suggest, and I know there's a cost associated with it, but as many police officers that can carry naloxone, uh, the better because they're not only able to use it on the community that they serve if they encounter someone that's had an overdose, but they also may be in a position where they're using that on one of their fellow law enforcement officers that's mm -hmm. been exposed. If an agency doesn't have naloxone available to them, they could call EMS or fire department and, and, you know, and have them on scene, and those agencies could assist if there was any kind of a medical emergency. Right. So I don't want to leave that hanging out there. It does sound like, in fact, that naloxone or Narcan, as it's sometimes referred to, will reverse the effects of fentanyl ingestion. Yes, yes it will. Um, naloxone is the drug name. Narcan is mm -hmm. one of the, the manufacturer or one of the products that's available that contains naloxone and it is very effective in reducing the effects of um, opioids including fentanyl but also heroin and other opioids so if that's something that an agency could obtain that would be very helpful of course officers would need the proper training on how to use naloxone and then also um, I would recommend if it's deployed that an officer call 911 and have EMS respond because sometimes the effects of the naloxone can wear off while the person is still under the influence of a narcotic and if that's the case they may relapse. They may have a secondary overdose and so I would always recommend if an officer deploys their naloxone whether it's on um, a victim or whether it's on one of their co-workers that they go ahead and call 911 and get them en route to, to, as a follow-up care. Right. Okay. So going back to our earlier conversation, Jessica, everything that I've heard about fentanyl has been bad. You don't want to look at it. You don't want to <laughs> see it. And you obviously don't want to touch it. We've talked about what officers should do. What should an officer not do when they encounter fentanyl? Uh, well, I think that's what, uh, you know, Kelly was just talking about in terms of using hand sanitizer. Um, that's probably one of the, the biggest things is to, to not use that. Everybody has it in their car door, so um, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive not to use it, but that um, it is certainly a risk. Um, but, you know, just safe handling practices is, is really uh, important. Just, you know, wearing gloves, being smart, not, you know, opening windows and doors to cause extra 
air to come flowing through, um, double bagging evidence. Um, that, that's certainly an important thing. You shouldn't just throw it in your car and um, certainly not in the passenger area of the vehicle. If you're going to collect evidence that would put it in your trunk and keep it secure there. I can piggyback onto that a little bit and um, talk about, again, these are just, this is just good hygiene almost mm-hmm. is don't handle your narcotics around your work area, right. you know, where you might eat lunch, where you might have your breakfast um, sitting there or a drink. Um, also, if you do not have to open a package of narcotics, then don't open a package of narcotics. And so if you can take that, let's say that you seize a bag of narcotics out of, out of a vehicle. If you can take that bag and then double bag it for submission to the crime lab, and we say double bag if you suspect it to contain fentanyl, then you can go ahead and submit that to the crime lab without having very much exposure as long as you don't open, open the baggie or examine the contents in any way, if at all possible. So um, things like smoking around unknown powders, you can avoid smoking. And then what seems obvious, but I know that we're very prone to do, is after you handle something and then you scratch your eye, you know, rub your eye or uh, put your fingers in your mouth, then you could accidentally have an exposure that way. So I think just being very cognizant of that after you're handling unknown powders so that you don't have some exposure that you did not anticipate. Okay, I'd like to follow up on that for just a moment. In the field... Field testing kits are obviously prevalent. Uh, There's a field testing kit. It seems like everything from aspirin all the way up to uh, the hard narcotics. But if an officer encounters what they suspect to be fentanyl, how do they field test it? Right. So that's a very good question, and we get asked that quite a bit. Uh, first off, if an officer encounters what they believe to be fentanyl, I would recommend that they not field test the material. Okay. Uh, rather, they, and, and hopefully they have some information in their investigation that points them in that direction. So rather than field test, I would recommend that they bag it up, double bag it, as we mentioned, wearing their protective equipment to protect themselves, and then, uh, and then put some sort of a label on that package of evidence that says, possible fentanyl or suspected fentanyl because when they submit that to a crime laboratory for analysis, that will then give the crime laboratory some idea that there may be fentanyl present present, and then the crime laboratory can use precautions for the chemist as well. So that would be my first recommendation. There are times where an officer needs to field test during the course of their investigation. Um, They may they may need to establish something pretty quickly, and, and we understand that, that sometimes you cannot avoid a field test. There are field tests available for the presence of fentanyl. Um, I would caution officers to not take the results of those field tests um, as 100% um, accurate un- until they have that l- secondary lab analysis or the confirmatory test from a crime laboratory. So if an officer must field test, then I would say at that point to use the um, a respirator and gloves. And again, as Special Agent Cadwalder was, was discussing earlier, you're going to want to do that in a controlled environment. So my number one recommendation would be in some sort of a, a hood, like a um, like an environmental hood, 
or, or a glove box mm-hmm. type setup that right. that some sheriff's offices have those. Yep, that, that box you, where you literally stick your arms and hands into and work in, in a controlled environment. That's exactly yeah. right. In the Whatever crime, the name of it is. Right. In the crime lab, sometimes they're called fume hoods. But in this right. in this case, yeah. we really, there wouldn't be any fumes associated with it. But yes, one of those glove boxes would work if, if an agency doesn't have a glove box, if they could just do it in an area where there's not a lot of wind blowing, again, where there's not food laying around. Um, and, and obviously be very, very careful, wash their hands with soap and water afterwards and try to avoid spillage. That would be my recommendation. Um, I do want to follow up on that and say that if an officer um, takes our recommendation and decides not to field test suspected fentanyl, I think it's very important to make sure that we are still following all the steps we need to step to all the steps we need to follow to establish probable cause in right. the investigation. So for for many officers are use these field test kits to establish that probable cause and that's fine. But in the absence of a field test kit, you're going to have to do some other you're going to have to use other avenues in order to establish the probable cause. So some of those avenues may include interviewing the suspect. It may be how the, the item is packaged. It may be um, how the suspect is behaving. Uh, some officers are trained on drug, recogni- drug mm-hmm. recognition experts, DREs. So is the, is the suspect have pinpoint pupils or dilated pupils? What kind of paraphernalia may be around because sometimes that's an indicator of the narcotics you're dealing with. And so all of these other um, areas of the investigation become all the more critical if you do not have a field test available to you. And a lot of that just comes down to the officer doing a complete investigation and secondly, documenting that investigation. Because the end result is that this is gonna be inside of a courtroom and we need to make sure that we're giving prosecutors all of the information so that they can proceed mm-hmm. with the investi- or with the prosecution right. in court. So it just sounds like slow, steady, good common sense. That's correct. Okay. Um, Special Agent Cadwalder, I'd like to look at an aspect that most street officers don't get to see, and that's the involvement by the Bureau. So um, Agent Page talked about the the clandestine unit being called. So can you maybe put us in into that room, into that basement, wherever it takes place, from your unit standpoint? What kind of process do you all engage once you arrive on the scene? Because I think a lot of times, you know, once you guys are called, the, the street cops kind of back out of it and, and let you all take over, and they don't ever get to see what the results of that are. Can you kind of sure. walk us through that for just a moment? So uh, the only folks that are going to be able to enter that scene are people that have had training in, in clan lab mm-hmm. response. So uh, there may be an officer from that department that is Klan Lab certified and can certainly okay. participate in that in that search. But um, it, it would basically look like um, what you described, where Klan Lab response uh, or certified agents or or personnel would enter the scene in in full PPE. Uh, certainly, depending on you know what the description of the scene uh, is at that mm-hmm. point, but. We would go in and, and certainly photograph everything and, um, you know, document what we're seeing and what the items are and in um, what stage they are. And then um, 
you know, safely remove everything from that environment. Um, it's a little bit different than a meth lab because we can't then just destroy everything. The, the SBI can't just haul it away. Right. There has to be a, a hazardous waste contractor that, that would respond to the scene and take care of that, um, which may require uh, that department to, to spend some money to do that. Mm -hmm. um, basically, is, is any other crime scene processing. It's just you're wearing PPE and, and have special training in, in wearing that equipment and identifying some of the chemicals or, or powders used. So um, it's just a methodical, slow process of um, photographing everything, documenting it all, and then removing everything from the scene. So are the things that come out of there considered evidence per se, or are they, are they logged and, and cataloged as evidence, or it, are we headed right to the destruction path? Yeah, it's certainly all considered hazardous waste because okay. it's you don't know what it is. And so you, in order to be safe about it, you have to assume that it's fentanyl, which is too dangerous for, um, in, in that gross contamination situation, right. to be saved. If you've got um, tables and chairs and pill press equipment that's covered in powder, there's no way to safely store that in an right. evidence vault without potentially contaminating everybody in the building. So that, that evidence would, would be documented and photographed but then ultimately destroyed. If it was a situation where the, it was just powder that could be safely packaged, um, then it could be potentially stored in evidence safely. Um, but in, in a gross contamination scene, it would be most likely destroyed okay. because it's considered hazardous waste. Right, okay. So <clears throat> from the SBI standpoint, you all obviously are, you know, kind of use a a term from an old movie at DEFCON 1 when you go in. It's it's all hands on deck. Everybody is suited up, dressed up. What about the post-session? You know, once you all finish doing what you're doing, then what happens to all the stuff that you put on and where does it go? <laughs> well, all the stuff has to be decontaminated uh, and or thrown away. I mm -hmm. mean, it, depending on what the suit is that, that we the level, if it's a level A right. situation, um, it, it is sort of DEFCON 1. That's right. additional right. outside resources need to, need to be requested and called in to help. But um, there, there is a level of decontamination that needs to happen afterwards um, of the equipment and uh, personnel. Right. And certainly we would have EMS on standby and, and present. And um, it, it, it's a pretty substantial... It's not going to be done in 30 minutes. You right. may have to wait a while for us to respond and for potentially regional response teams to, to respond. So it's, um, it is a pretty elaborate situation um, mm. that, that, that takes a lot of time. And you, and you want it to take time because you, don't, you want to make sure it's done correctly and done safely and that everybody goes home at the end of the day. Right. So you talked a little bit about the, the regional response team, and I guess it's that situation of sometimes the cops have to call SRT do you all ever hit a situation where you think, wow, this might be just a step above our pay grade? Is there someone that you all can call that, that has more expertise or better equipment or anything of that nature? Sure. We, we've had to call regional response teams uh, several times because often the fire departments have you know, more equipment when it comes to decontamination, more experience and training in that than, than cops do. Mm -hmm. So uh, luckily we've got good partnerships with, um, with those groups, then they're more than willing to come out and help in any way that they can. So it's, it's certainly important to get them involved and um, 
you know, get their expertise in, in those areas as well. Okay. So let me go back to you, Agent Page. What, what are some other things that officers need to be mindful of? We've, I feel like we've covered the gamut of the safety issue, the take your time issue, the, the good common sense type things, but just as a, as a regular street cop who's walking into a scene just cold as they can be and they encounter all these things, what are, what are some other things if we could kind of start hitting the summary button just a little bit some, of some things that they need to be mindful of? So I think, number one, the fact that we're having this conversation today and, and officers may be listening to this podcast is very helpful because just having an awareness right. that these drugs are out there, that how they can hurt you, how they, how you might get exposed, and then how you might not get exposed. So that also kind of brings a sense of calm if officers are aware of the hazards and that they know that they have the resources um, and the equipment to protect themselves. So just being aware, a lot of the things that we've talked about today are safe handling practices. So if they have the protective equipment in place, if they carry naloxone, then they're halfway there. Um, Also, again, just using a lot of the safe handling practices like not handling narcotics around where you eat, not using hand sanitizer, Um, packaging up evidence for the crime lab, avoiding field testing where possible, and when you do field test, wearing that protective equipment, that's a big piece of it. And I would say lastly, knowing, knowing that there are resources out there to help officers if they're on a scene and they have questions or they're in a bind, um, they're welcome to reach out to the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. They can contact their local field, field district office. We have eight district offices around the state of North Carolina. They're also welcome to call the Clandestine Laboratory Response Unit directly if they know a member of that unit. Mm-hmm. And we can assist. We, our, our Clan Lab Unit is happy to re- respond to the scene, pro- provide protective equipment, or just offer guidance over mm-hmm. the phone if that's what they're after. Um, there's also some other resources that officers should be aware of. The North Carolina State Crime Lab is a wealth of information. Um, they are the true experts in this. And so they're very helpful if there's any questions that an officer may have about packaging and submissions and what they're dealing with. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration or the DEA um, also has a very strong opioid initiative and and publications out there and their website is an amazing resource if officers want to read some more about that and then there are several local field offices in North Carolina that they can contact with the DEA. Um, I also want to mention Carolina Poison Center. Carolina Poison Center has been a very important partner to the SBI along with the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services in dealing with potential officer exposures to fentanyl. Mm -hmm. So if an officer feels like they have been exposed to fentanyl or their partner has, it's very important that they administer naloxone if they're exhibiting respiratory distress signs, call 911, and also call the Carolina Poison Center because the Poison Center is very well equipped to deal, to give the officers information and to also deal with these types of potential exposures. And then they can also do some follow-up testing to confirm whether the officer was exposed, and if so, what to. Um, And then lastly, I would also point to the North Carolina Department of Justice that has recently launched a opioid-related campaign Mm -hmm. called More Powerful NC, 
And if you go to that website, the Department of Justice has listed there some resources um, for treatment if you're, if you're needing treatment. Um, if they are also resources there for law enforcement officers. It's really good, a really great comprehensive overview of the opioid crisis in North Carolina and all of the different agencies that are involved in trying to come up with some solutions to this, whether you're coming from an addiction um, point of view or treatment point of view or whether you're coming from the law enforcement point of view mm -hmm. because it truly does impact our entire community. So I think the Department of Justice and the More Powerful NC campaign has been very helpful in pooling all of those resources together. Right. Well, it's obvious that our discussion today is a very small piece of a very large picture. And I want to thank you both for coming in and, and having this conversation. And hopefully the cops out on the street are going to get some information that will uh, not only help them, but probably save their lives and save the lives of those around them. So special thanks to Special Agent Kelly Page of the North Carolina SBI, as well as Special Agent Jessica Cadwallader. Thank you for letting me pronounce your name properly. <laughs> thank you, Kirk. I grew up with a name like Puckett, so I understand your pain. <laughs> but thank you both for taking the time to be here. And thanks to those of you who are out there listening today. Be safe. As we continue our discussion on opioids, Katie Shell from the North Carolina State Crime Lab will be with us to discuss how the State Crime Lab assists in the opioid crisis and the role of the Crime Lab. The next time you're on one of our campuses, please stop by the North Carolina Justice Academy Bookstore. There you can find books, t-shirts, collectible coins, and much more. You've been listening to the North Carolina Justice Academy 1014. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. If you have any questions that you would like answered, please contact us. Send any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed to ncjainformation at ncdoj.gov. We're here for you.